Hello, and welcome to the Tech Dirt Podcast. I'm Mike Masnick. Last week, we had our podcast with John Sands, Marianne Franks, and Eric Goldman discussing their Lessons from the First Internet Ages, which was a collection of essays and then a two-day event discussing that collection of essays. Uh, And so last week we had the three of them on to talk about uh, the whole project and everything that went into it. And I thought that was uh, really fun and really interesting. And this week, as I promised uh, then, we have the panel that I was on during that two-day event. Uh, The official title of our session was Evolving Norms in the Governance of Online Communities and was a discussion moderated by former podcast guest Evelyn Duick uh, with myself and another former podcast guest Daphne Keller. Uh, It was a fun, wide-ranging conversation all about content moderation, online communities, uh, and a variety of other things, and I hope that you enjoy it. Today's session is going to be focusing on evolving norms in the governance of online communities. And we are delighted to have our panelists with us today, including Daphne Keller, who is the Director of the Program on Platform Regulation at the Cyber Policy Center at Stanford University. She's joined by Mike Masnick, who is the founder and CEO of the Copia Institute and an editor and the editor of Tech Dirt. The session will be moderated by Evelyn Dueck, who is a lecturer on law at Harvard Law School, as well as a senior research fellow at the first the Knight First Amendment Institute. Evelyn, the floor is yours. Thanks, Marianne. Um, So really excited about this panel. Uh, As was just introduced, we're asked to talk about evolving norms in the governance of online communities. And we've been specifically asked to also talk about uh, up and down the stack and the different opportunities and challenges at different areas of the stack. And I mean, we could spend uh, an entire 50 minute session on sort of every single layer, um, but, you know, we don't have time to do that. So instead, um, what I think might be useful is to start with uh, getting us on sort of the same page and maybe talking about what the stack is. And Mike, you recently had a big event on this. So I'm wondering if you could just sort of give us the um, st- internet stack for dummies version of what we're going to be talking about today. Well, well, part of part of what we discovered at our event is that there is no such uh, internet stack for dummies. And in fact, you know, uh, it's, it's kind of up in the air. You know, there is this idea, so much of the discussion around, you know, uh, internet regulations and platform regulation has really focused on, you know, the big companies that we all know and use and and see every day. And that's, you know, your Facebook and your Google uh, and and Amazon and and whatnot. Um, You know, but what was important and what we were trying to discuss at at the event that we held a few weeks ago was the fact that the internet is is a lot more than that. And that's not just the, the smaller players that we touch, but all of the players that make the internet itself work. Um, And, you know, if you go back a few decades, there was this sort of OSI model of the internet stack in terms of like network layer and, and application layers. And, you know, the thing that became really clear and, and has been clear for a few years now is that, that that model doesn't really make sense anymore and doesn't apply. But there are a lot of other companies involved in, in providing the internet that, that we use today. And, you know, we saw that if, you know, for folks who have been reading the, the various pieces that are part of, of this event, you know, the interview that Eric did with Matthew Prince of Cloudflare. I mean, Cloudflare is a perfect example of this, that it, you know, provides CDN and, and related security services that don't touch the end user, um, and they, but they have you know this sort of important role to play in the internet. And increasingly, what has happened is that there have been attempts to to move the content regulation questions away from the Facebooks and the Googles and and whoever's at the edge towards those other players. And and there are a variety of reasons for this. And this was a lot of what we discussed: is that there is. Um, you know, one, if, if you're upset with the way that the edge providers are handling things, you have other shots at it. You know, you sort of move upstream or downstream, depending on which which way you want to set the, the model. Um, and so, 
but but that creates a lot of challenges. Generally speaking, the the players who are um, you know further down the stack uh, have one tool and one tool only, and that is to cut you off entirely. Um, they're they're and, and then it, it begins to get confusing too because you look at other players sort of on the on the edges of the internet stack, but are not edge players. So you have you know payment processors. So Mastercard is suddenly in the news a lot lately because they're trying to enforce certain policies on certain websites, uh, and that is an, an infrastructure player, and they're able to force companies to act in a certain way, and they become important in this as well. And so the thing that we sort of discussed and, and sort of what became really clear in the in the event that we had was that this is really, really complex. Uh, and anyone who thinks that they have like a clear model of how it all works, or uh, more importantly, how it should work, and sort of what regulations will make it work better, uh, has not taken everything into account. And I, I think, you know, a lot of people came into the event with, you know, sort of very clear ideas on this is how it should be, you know, and some people were saying, you know, the the infrastructure players should uh, never do any moderation at all. Uh, and that is an, an appealing idea. But as you begin to drill down on it, you realize that's impossible too. And that creates uh, demands that, that don't make any sense and, and create all sorts of problems for different companies. Uh, you have people who wanted, you know, specific you know, depending on where you are in the stack, you should have different different requirements. And that becomes really complex also because where you are in the stack is not really clear either. So the, the sort of summary of, of what we learned in that session is that it's really, really complex. It's nobody agrees uh, and nobody has any clear answers. And so uh, that's, a, that's a, perhaps a great way to kick off this panel uh, <laughs> is to, to make it all, all the more confusing. No, I mean, I'm sure in the next 45 minutes, we, we are going to come up with those clear answers. Uh, absolutely. Um, no, that was a super helpful overview. I think um, the Matthew Prince interview is obviously the one that uh, most squarely puts this on the table. And he has this great image in it, I think, of the Jenga blocks uh, and the idea that as you go down the stack, if you pull out a Jenga block further down the stack, uh, you are going to make the whole structure more unstable. But if you sort of at the top, you can do more of the application layer, like your Facebooks and your uh, Twitters and, and your, you know, uh, YouTube tubes that don't sort of affect the entire structure uh, quite as much. Um, and I think the idea that there's just so many people involved in this that we don't normally think about, um, but that we are seeing get involved in content moderation, you know, that we're interacting with every day. Like I was reading a story yesterday about the payment processor Stripe, um, cutting off the practitioners of the occult, um, you know, <laughs> witches, and wi uh, witches and wizards that, uh, you know, uh, they sometimes get into trouble because they could be running scams. Um, um, but, you know, sometimes they're just like providing a, a fun service. So all of these issues that, are, as you say, Mike, uh, are extremely complicated. And, uh, you know, I, I would jump in and add since one of the themes here is the sort of uh, lessons from the Internet's first age that I think one thing that those of us who, who are old enough to have been around in the 90s, at least kind of inherited from that is the idea of end to end design principles, which is a term that we all sort of learned in the cradle but that my students don't know at all, um, you know, which is sort of this technical design idea that you want dumb pipes in the middle and you wanna push um, the intelligence in the system to the edges and push content moderation decisions to the edges um, in ways that I think were explained really well actually in Anne-Marie Bridey's Remediating Social Media article, it does a good job of it explaining the, the policy, policy basis for that distinction as, as opposed to the sort of technical basis. Um, but you know, if you start from that end-to-end -end design approach, you do come in, as Mike was saying, with this assumption of like, well, don't have the content moderation be in the middle, of course, push it, push it to the edges. Um, but that, that gets really complicated. You know, sometimes the edges sit in the hands of somebody um, who is in another country and doesn't care about United States laws governing things like child sexual abuse material. You know, there, there are many scenarios where that becomes a, a much more fraught question, I think, than, um, than, than you would think starting from a, a, the simplest version of, of that end-to-end -end design principle. I, I also think we're just seeing a real questioning of the 
assumptions that animated that, you know, is the assumption that animated that was we want to minimize um, control, in particular, we're worried about government control that might be used abusively. I remember in 2000, uh, my students and I worked with IETF, the Internet Engineering Task Force, vetting technical standards against precisely that kind of potential for abuse. But but now the conversation has shifted so, so much to people kind of wanting choke points, you know, <laughs> being worried enough about harmful content on the internet that the possibility for control starts to seem appealing um, to people who 15, 20, 25 years ago might have started with just the opposite assumption. Yeah, and I think, um, so first of all, I just want to really second Amor, the recommendation for Amory Brighty's work in this space. Uh, she was one of the sort of earliest people to really think in depth uh, analytically about the frameworks we need in this, and it's sort of now exploded into public consciousness uh, in the last sort of year or two. I mean, I think the, the, the other big big example that people might know of as sort of thinking as content moderation in the stack um, is when uh, the, uh, like, Am uh, sorry, Apple and Google kicked Parler out of the App Store um, and Amazon Web Services took it down as well. And so that's where the application layer um, wasn't doing the content moderation that we have now come to expect uh, or, or many people have come to expect uh, of, of application layer content moderation. Um, and so it sort of got smooshed uh, to another area of the stack. And so, I mean, Mike, you were saying earlier that we are seeing more and more of that. And I think Daphne, you just raised that as well of like the evolving norms and the assumptions that we had uh, under underlying that first internet age. And I'm, so I'm wondering if you could both talk about, you know, what you think is driving that and whether you agree. I think this comes through quite, quite strongly in a number of the reflections in particular about that, like people talking about that application layer. And so I'd be curious for your reactions to those. Um, I mean, there's so many directions that you could go in with this. You know, I, I think that... Um, there are a few different things that have happened over the last, you know, 20, 30 years. And some of this is, is very much sort of uh, discussed in, in the various write-ups um, that I think, you know, make this clear, which is, you know, the internet itself has evolved quite a bit um, in some ways for better, in some ways for worse. And that we've moved from a world that was, you know, uh, as Tim Berners-Lee wrote in his thing, you know, really did start on, on a focus on, on sort of open protocols that, made what Daphne was just talking about possible where, you know, the, the protocols were, were just there and completely neutral and anyone could use them um, to a world that is more proprietary and um, where different companies have a lot more control over what is actually happening across the wider internet than we had when we had these discussions 20 or 30 years ago. And, and so you have that aspect of it has changed and that there are companies that, that can do more than was even possible uh, before. And those companies are a lot more powerful and a lot, a lot bigger. Um, but you, you get these situations like, you know, uh, like the parlor situation I actually think is really interesting because that one actually demonstrates, um, you know, again, sort of how the internet has evolved in, in two sort of interesting ways. One being the rise of mobile, uh, and mobile being a much more proprietary setup than the internet, the internet being open, anyone could sort of create for it, whereas mobile is is a much more lockdown ecosystem, especially Apple and iOS, where you literally need permission from Apple to get an app uh, into the, the app store. In Google, you have the possibility of sideloading on Android, but for the most part, you have a, a fairly similar situation in which they have the control. And we never had that in the original internet. If you wanted to create a website, you created a website, you didn't need, you know, one of two giant companies to, to decide that, that you were okay with it. Um, the second aspect of the parlor one is the rise of Amazon Web Services. And now there there is, you know, there's a fair bit of competition there, but you have these, you know, cloud providers. Um, and there really are only a few really large ones. Um, you can find alternates and you can do other things, but you have these 
these players, you know, again, sort of beneath the the edge of the internet, who are providing the sort of key services that keep different things alive, and that's that's very very different than than uh, you know what we had, you know, even ten years ago, uh, let alone twenty or thirty. And so, because you've created these choke points, they're going to be used. Um, and then you get to the point where, which you know, Daphne was pointing out, which is that some people like the fact that there are choke points because it allows them to have some level of control, uh, and and some people don't, and and there are you know there are a lot of trade offs involved in 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 all of these things, and and you know again some are for good and some are for worse, and and this recognition that you know what the internet allowed people to do was communicate and to to communicate you know uh, with very large groups of people or very niche audiences or or whatever and find different communities and in many cases that's been really wonderful and the ability to 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 communicate uh, and and find like-minded people or people you can discuss stuff with has been really important. I mean, we're doing this on the internet right now, you know, which really would not have been possible not that long ago. Um but also, there are some people out there who have, you know, found groups that that are perhaps unhealthy for society, uh, and and have been able to communicate in ways that 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 you know are problematic. And so, how do you balance that? The fact that society has, um, you know, has this ability now that is very different than what they had pre-internet. And I think that's that's become the challenge. And so much of this is sort of society, uh, and and often. You know, existing institutions trying to figure out how do we take this new world and and make sense of it. Um, you know, things that were possible that that weren't possible, you know, forty, fifty years ago are now possible, and some of those are good things, and we want to support that. But the same mechanisms that enable those good things and all of the the you know the the good communities and the good connections and the good communications that come out of it also enable the opposite of that, and we all sort of as a society need to figure out ways to come to terms with that, that people can use these technologies for both good and for bad. And then what do we do about it? And, you know, some of these problems about people acting badly are the kinds of things that, you know, society has tried to deal with for all of, you know, modern civilization and haven't quite figured out ways to, to, to stop bad behavior other than like, you know, you try to criminalize things or, or, or whatnot. Um, and now we're, we're suddenly trying to, you know, make society work and, and seeing technology as this tool, this sort of intermediary tool that maybe we can, we can make society work. And, and I don't think we've sort of processed how much of this is not really a technological problem as it is a, a, a problem of humanity and society. I've, I've gone way off from where your question started. <laughs> so, but I, I would build on that, um, and, and maybe this pulls back toward the question, or maybe we don't need to pull back toward the question. <laughs> um, but, you know, I, I think part of the idea of having, you know, dumb pipes and, and not putting content moderation down in the infrastructure layers of the stack um, was, was that control should be pushed to the very edges of the network. And, and what was meant by the edges of the network, you know, in the 1990s, was like you, your browser, your laptop, your phone. Um, and and that assumption that there would be technologies that would enable real like individual level control or parental level control over what children see, et cetera, that really animated a lot of the policy making then. You know, in um, CDA 230, part of the assumption pretty clearly stated by Congress is we want to enable the development of technologies for you know parents to control what their children will see. And you know, we think this is coming. Similarly, in Reno v. ACLU, the sort of like seminal First Amendment case um, about the internet, a lot of what the Supreme Court was talking about there was yeah, there should be restrictions on what people see on the internet and the tools for creating those restrictions should be in the hands of, of people themselves. But for the most part, that, that didn't come to pass. And there's kind of an interesting chicken egg question, like did that not come to pass because major platforms came along to create a centralized point of control, you know, just short of the consumer um, so that you could go to Facebook and be, you know, somewhat certain of not seeing porn or, you know, not see as much 
you know, Goatsy or whatever, as, as you might have seen on the open web. Um, you know, did, did the emergence of the platforms make it so that we didn't ever get that consumer uh, control technology that was coming? Or was it that that technology was never coming because it's actually really hard to do? And that's part of the reason that that we got the platforms. Um, you know, in, in, a, in a way, it in a way, it's a it's a history question that doesn't matter, but in a way, it matters a lot because it it relates to the question of what are our options going forward. You know, can we move to a scenario of better control at the edges of the network, and and do we want that? You know, do we want the relinquishment of choke points um, that that would come with it? I, I I think that's a, it's a really good and important observation that that you just made, and and. You know, I think back again to, to to one of the papers in this collection, which is the Tim Berners-Lee one, where he talks about, you know, when he created the first, you know, the web, <laughs> he created the web itself, not the, the first anything, <laughs> but, but with it, you know, was sort of the first web server. And the idea was that it was supposed to be read-write. And when you consume the web, you were also hosting, uh, you know, what you were creating as well. Everything was a web server as well. And so he envisioned it as this read-write platform as opposed to mostly just a, a, a reading platform. Um, and that's one where you have ultimate control, right? If you're hosting your own web server, uh, you know, on your own local computer, that's, that's you know, significant levels of control at the, you know, at very much at the ends of the network. Um, but I think and he, and he sort of alluded to this in his paper, and I think which becomes important is the fact that that's technically difficult, and and that's sort of what what I think you know we discovered in the the intervening thirty to forty years is that um, you know expecting all of the power to go to the ends requires a, a level of technical proficiency for those those end users that was really a lot and and in some cases difficult and complex and too much for people to handle and that really opened up the field for these more centralized players to come in and say look we're going to just make everything easy for you and you know and and you know the way we think about it generally is that what they did was they created really nice user interfaces and just made you know made the 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 process of using the internet much cleaner and easier but that also sort of with that came this sort of implicit level of we're going to also control the experience and make it a nicer experience for you. And that's where like I actually think there is this opportunity space. I don't know if it will if it will come, you know, and if it will happen, but you know, a lot of the the writing that I've done on this sort of, you know, protocols instead of platforms idea was, you know, I looked at the the problems that protocols that early protocols had, you know, uh, you know, Usenet being a perfect example, you know, I think that, you know, Reddit today is a centralized Usenet, you know, it, there, there's, there's so many similarities between them, but Usenet was kind of a pain to use and it was difficult and you had to, you know, play with the settings, you know, maybe you could find a provider who made it somewhat easy for you, but it was still sort of complex. Whereas Reddit is just very clear and very easy to use. And that opened it up. I mean, there's, there's, a ton more people using Reddit and and finding use out of Reddit than ever used Usenet, um, but you know we've lost something in that you know when all of the control is really within the hands of this this one company um, as opposed to you know the Usenet setup where there were all different Usenet servers and those servers could choose which of the news groups they they allowed and then you as an end user could add an, another layer of control as well in terms of you know setting up your own kill file and saying I'm going to block this user I'm going to block this kind of content um, but that was again sort of complicated and so by layering on the sort of ease of use you know, these centralized players were able to sort of take over that space and you didn't get that that sort of, and you moved away from that level of end user control because that was, it was seen as too complicated or too problematic, or in some cases, you know, opening yourself up to, to privacy and security concerns. If you're hosting all that yourself, you make one mistake and you could, you know, you could reveal all sorts of stuff you don't want to reveal. So, you know, the hope is, you know, could we create a, a, a new world that goes back to that sort of more distributed protocol-based world, but that still has the sort of ease of use and the security and privacy benefits. Uh, well, I shouldn't say privacy benefits necessarily, but the security benefits of a more centralized system. Um, and, you know, and I think that's a really big open question. And I know that there are, 
you know, groups and companies out there working on it, but I haven't seen anything that really proves that 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 that's possible. I, I think, I imagine, hypothetically, it should be possible that we can take the lessons of the ease of use of today's centralized systems and that the the future more decentralized systems can can build those same kinds of ease of use features in. Um, but I, I still have this sort of gnawing feeling that you know we're go going to face that same problem. And and people point this out to me all the time, like, well, you know when I talk about the ability to sort of create your own filters, uh, you know, on social media, people say, well, nobody wants to do that. Uh, you know, except for, you know, you'll have a really small percentage of people who actually want to curate their own filter systems. And, and my hope is that, you know, you could get some sort of happy medium where it's not that every individual, when you push the power to the end, that every individual has to build their own filters or create their own filters, but that you could have options of a bunch of other, organizations uh, or individuals that you trust and say, you know, I trust, you know, I, wh whoever, you know, I trust the ACLU to give me a filter that that works or EFF to give me a filter that meets my needs or, or you know, whatever other group um, that, that you feel comfortable with. And then you have this, this nice thing where you don't necessarily have to make all the decisions yourself at the end, which would be too time consuming and too risky on your own. But, you know, it's not left up to just like one company based in, in, you know, Silicon Valley that is making decisions globally for everybody. But rather you have all of these different options that you can sort of pick and choose and say, I'm comfortable with this organization here and I'm going to accept their filter choices. Yeah, I think one thing that you're raising there, Mike, is this really interesting tension that I observe in a lot of these debates as well, where like Daphne was saying earlier, by and large, and I think this really does come through in the in the package, is there's been um, a move towards call for greater gatekeeping, right? This idea that there was not enough gatekeeping uh, in the age of the early internet and that, you know, we needed to, uh, the platforms in particular needed to have rise and uh, accept the responsibility of their services um, and, and take more accountability for what's going on. But then there's this other tension that you're raising, Mike, is that, but these gatekeepers are so powerful and they're too powerful. And, you know, we want to decentralize and take, take the power away from uh, these all, all powerful actors. Um, and there's a real tension there right like do you want gatekeeping or do you not want gatekeeping and the the the, the uh the the tension between centralization and decentralization and i mean i just want to i would be remiss to not also add the sort of global aspect i think of this is like once you um once you create a lever you don't know how it's going to be pulled or who's going to pull it um and so we were talking about parlor being kicked off the app store earlier um but another really recent prominent example was um in in russia um, um, there was an, an app made by Alexei Navalny where Apple and Google also kicked that off the App Store. And so it's this idea of like, if there's a lever, it won't necessarily be pulled in the way uh, that you expect. Um, and, and, you know, that's a trade-off. That doesn't necessarily mean that we should only have dumb pipes. Um, it's just something that we need to be to be conscious of um, when, when thinking about, uh, you know, how to move forward here. Um, but let's let's talk then a bit more about uh, centralization, decentralization, and and powers uh, where where the power should go because I know that's something that both of you have thought deeply about. Um, Mike, you referenced earlier protocols, not platforms, and Daphne, I know that you you know you call it magic APIs uh, as a as a solution. So maybe Daphne, if you could just sort of give us an overview of the kind of thinking around there for people that wouldn't be familiar with that line of thought. Sure. And so this is, you know, a way of thinking about managing information online that, that goes back a long way. And Mike's done some of the most important writing on it under the moniker of protocols, not platforms. Uh, Cory Doctorow calls it adversarial interoperability. I was calling it magic APIs. That's too nerdy. No, nobody understands <laughs> that. But my, my uh, Stanford colleague, Francis Fukuyama, has used the moniker middleware, which seems to sort of caught on in policy circles. So I, I tend to use that one now. But, you know, as Mike was saying, it's this idea that like maybe on top of existing platforms or instead of existing platforms, um, you know, individual users could have their choice of a provider who, you know, gives them the ranking or the content moderation that they want or that is recommended by their church or that is recommended by 
ESPN because they're sports fans or, you know, that is a um, flavor of Twitter ranked by a Black Lives Matter affiliated group. You know, there are just so many ways where you could kind of delegate your trust to somebody other than the incumbent mega platforms um, and, and reduce the sort of choke point um, control that, that they have over online speech. The, the things that I, and the potential for, you know, harm if they amplify the wrong thing and it's the whole world seeing it versus, you know, one provider amplifying the wrong thing and it's one one thousandth of the world seeing it. Um, the, the points that I tend to point to in my, um, uh, in, in my writing about it are, are super practical. It's just the like, how do you make that work consistent with user privacy? You know, do, if I sign up for an, a provider who I want to moderate the tweets that I'm seeing incoming and there are privately shared tweets or, you know, a privately shared Facebook post, does that mean that I get to show my friend's private content to this potentially fly-by-night provider who, you know, maybe looks a lot like Cambridge Analytica so that they can provide this, this service to me? Um, you know, and then there are practical questions about, you know, how do you make it pay? How do you distribute revenue so that there's an incentive for these providers to come along? How do you make the costs of content moderation not just um, lethal for the system, which as things stand right now, there are a lot of redundant costs built in if every provider who comes along is independently assessing the same pieces of content. So they all need, you know, a Chechen speaker and um, uh, Arabic speaker with multiple dialects and, and so forth. So there, there are a bunch of practical issues, but I'm increasingly convinced that in sort of more policy discussions, we, we have to come back to this really deep question about wanting choke points. And it's like a Max Weber question or a Marx question or a John Stuart Mill question. You know, it's like, do you have faith in human institutions to ultimately use this power wisely? Or are you worried about regime change? You know, are you worried about uh, change in who's in control inside a platform or which um, market they want to get into? And so which government they're willing to listen to? Uh, you know, is, is this a, a lever that, that you want to exist at all? Um, I was kind of intrigued in the packet um, by, by, by a bunch of things, uh, but I'll, I'll start with um, Matthew Prince's discussion uh, of China and how sort of going into China, um, the, the kind of lens that you have to bring to it as a lawyer is knowing that every kind of service is licensed, uh, that you are always operating, operating uh, in a way that is conditional on continued permission from the government and, and on the opinion of a particular regulator. And I know from experience, this is not just like, I wanna be an internet service, so I need the equivalent of an FCC license. It's also like, I want to show weather forecasts. So I need a weather for forecasting license. You know, it's, it's, it's a lot of gatekeepers, um, speaking of gatekeepers. But, you know, for a discussion of infrastructure, this got me thinking about how, um, those who want fewer choke points on the internet tend to want to take services like Cloudflare or services like GoDaddy and like push them down into the infrastructure layer and say, hey, once something is down in the infrastructure layer, it is not appropriately in the content moderation business. Like this is the layer where, you know, something like neutrality pertains. But there's kind of a reverse way of looking at that, which is once you're down in the infrastructure layer, that's the layer where the FCC or FT, you know, or its uh, international analogs uh, believes that they are supposed to be in the licensing business. <laughs> you know, you start getting into this space where there's a, a fair amount of government expectation of control uh, in a way that at least until recently was not the case for providers that are, that are uh, higher in the stack or closer to the edges of the network. So I, I kind of feel like there's some useful thinking to be done um, about what regulatory expectations come with the framing particular technologies as infrastructure and you know, what consequences those might have that might not be part of the discussion for people who come to this from a sort of like 90s internet stack uh, mentality. 
I obviously yeah. want to let you uh, respond, Mike, and, and and talk about protocols, not platforms. But I just want to jump in and say, like, I particularly, I really like um, the the reflection, Matthew Prince's reflection about the internet issues and the international issues as well. And I mean, it's not just China. Like, one of my favorite quotes in that piece is where he's talking about Germany. And if you you know you go to uh, uh, Germany and you say, "What about the First Amendment?" and they're polite if they don't roll their eyes, you know, it's like uh, Germany just has different norms around free speech and this sort of naivete uh, in the in the first internet era that you know America's free speech norms were inevitably the best and everyone would come to accept this um, and this really comes through in Nicole Wong's piece as well I think of the, the issue of these US-based tech companies suddenly finding themselves uh, governing speech everywhere and confronting different issues but uh, yeah I just thought I'd, I'd highlight that Mike please uh, please jump in. Yeah no I, I think that's it's that's a really important point and it's you know it's interesting also how those those norms and thoughts globally have developed over time right you know in the in the early 2000s you know as as china was building up its you know great firewall as it's referred to that it's been really interesting to watch how that has evolved over time um and you know unfortunately it looks like you know i, I think a lot of people myself included you know when we saw that we said well that's you know that's not going to work uh, that's going to create more problems than than it solves, and they're sort of cutting themselves off from the wider internet, and they're going to lose out on important innovation and the importance of building up communities and and the ability to communicate globally. Um, that's not really the way it's turned out, uh, and instead, we're actually seeing things like you know the UK and their uh, online safety. Uh, act or bill or whatever, which was originally the online harms bill. It's a, sort of an, an interesting rebranding from online harms to online safety. But if you look at the mechanism there, it's it's vaguely like what the original Great Firewall of China was, which has changed over time. But the original Great Firewall of China worked in this manner by which you weren't told exactly what content was no good. The ISPs were just told you know, if we discover content that, that you're passing along that we decide is no good, you're going to get in trouble for it. And we're going to, to you know, uh, cause, you, cause you pain effectively. Um, and therefore, like, don't let that happen. And occasionally we'll send you sort of angry notices saying that you, you, you know, left up something that you shouldn't have. And so because of that, the natural inclination and the, the obvious inclination is that the ISPs just started blocking you know, very, very broadly, because if you don't know what's going to get you in trouble, your your the natural next move is take down a lot more stuff than you leave up, and that's exactly what happened in China. And yet, you look at the the mechanism in the online harms or sorry, online safety bill, and it's it's that same sort of thing when it comes to this idea of of you know what sometimes referred to as lawful but awful content. You know, you can get in trouble for stuff that is legal. But that somebody has decided shouldn't shouldn't still be allowed on the internet, and that just creates this this sense of of overblocking. I know like Daphne has done all this work globally, mostly in the copyright context, but it, it applies much more beyond that as well about the the overblocking issue. When you create this level of liability for providers, their their natural inclination is to avoid the liability, and that's going to mean you know taking down more content than than you know, would otherwise happen. And and we're seeing more and more efforts globally for that kind of regime to, to, to come in. I want to take us back to the interoperability question with an audience uh, question here, which is about the future of interoperability um, and, you know, something that big tech would loathe. Uh, it would decrease their control and allow niche platforms with their own culture to exist. And I'll, I want to put that, uh, I mean, to you, Mike, uh, I wonder whether big tech would loathe it or whether all big tech would loathe it. I mean, I want to question that. I, I, I'm constantly <laughs> um, uh, amused by this content moderation hot potato that I see going around, which is like, you know, nobody actually really wants to be making these decisions. They yeah. just want to throw it to some other decision maker in some other area in the stack. And obviously you, uh, you know, have, have this protocols, not platforms uh, approach, which has been, I mean, I don't know if Twitter uh, qualifies as big tech, but it's, you know, being yeah. picked up and embraced by big tech. So I'd love to hear you talk about that. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, and, and to be honest, like that was some of the thinking in writing that paper in the first place, which was, you know, and if you read it, you know, I, I sort of say pretty explicitly, like, you know, 
this is becoming a bigger and bigger pain for these companies and having to deal with these questions and to hire tens of thousands of moderators and to, to not be making any progress, depending on how you define progress, on, on dealing with this and being called in front of Congress every three months to be raked over the coals and have, you know, uh, senators who don't understand any of this, you know, screaming at you. At some point, it might just be worth it to give up that level of control and to, to you know, to, to move that issue elsewhere. Um, and so some people got mad at me about that and were saying, well, you're saying they should, they should, you know, uh, get rid of the responsibility. But like, you know, I think there's a strong argument that we shouldn't want these companies to have that responsibility in the first place. And then the, the point that you sort of alluded to, which is that, you know, one of the companies, again, whether or not they qualify as big tech is kind of an open question, but Twitter has embraced that specifically citing the paper and saying that they're going to experiment with this thing. And they've spun off this, this group called Blue Sky, which is working on a decentralized protocol for social media. It's still early. They just a couple months ago named the, the person to head that, which is Jay Graber. Um, and uh, I, Assume that we'll be hearing a lot more about it. Um, you know, Jay has a, has a really amazing vision for what she thinks the, the project is called Blue Sky, and she has a, a really strong vision for what Blue Sky should be. Um, and I think it's it's really compelling, and I think it's one of the more interesting experiments that we'll see about whether or not you can take a large company um, that already does have all of this control and and data and you know, uh, that everything is in the sort of, you know, uh, proprietary silo and whether or not they can actually move to a more open, distributed, decentralized approach and recognize that they can still, you know, have a business, even if they're not uh, in, in full control of all that data. Um, and we'll see, you know, whether or not any of the other companies would move in that direction. I don't know. Um, you know, part of what, um you know, what Cory Doctorow is working on with this idea of, uh, well, uh, Daphne, you, you said it's adversarial interoperability, though they've renamed it because they said that the uh, Germans couldn't say adversarial interoperability for some reason. And so now it's competitive compatibility or ComCom, which at least is, you know, has a, has a nice ring to it in, in some sense. Um, but, you know, the idea is like, can you effectively force that on companies, whether or not they're willing to, to do so? And there are moves towards that, you know, uh, on the policy side, you have like the Access Act, which I think is, is maybe its heart is in the right place, but it's, it's sort of poorly drafted to get at that. I think there are a lot of other ways that you could sort of um, force the companies into this move. I mean, one, this is, you know, not not the be all and end all, but one thing that I've thought about is like for the really, really giant companies, the ones who are, let's say, facing antitrust lawsuits and investigations around the world, um, you know, one interesting idea is that allowing a sort of get out of antitrust jail free card if you say that you're willing to you know open up your your system to become a protocol or to become a more decentralized thing that others can build on i think there's something interesting there and that you're enabling this kind of competition and so i understand the general feeling that these companies don't necessarily want to give up their data advantage um but I think that there are arguments for why they might eventually get to that spot. And, and Twitter's embrace of it potentially is one example of that. And, and you know, what, what Jack Dorsey said when he announced that plan was specifically like, we think that our competitive advantage is not so much in all of the data that we're getting, but in how we sort of present it and how we, you know, I think the phrase that Twitter likes to use is conversational health, that we can create a better conversational health model for the participants here. And therefore, you know, we don't need to own all that data and we don't need to hold all of that data ourselves and, and sort of hoard it. And so, you know, I think there is a path to, to getting past this belief that the companies need to have all the data um, and, and, and keep it all internally. And, you know, and some of that might be through, you know, adversarial interoperability, competitive compatibility, where the companies really don't have much choice, but people can sort of, you know, get that data out themselves and sort of build on it uh, without the permission of the companies in the first place. I would also contrast Project Blue Sky with the Facebook oversight board, right? <laughs> you know, Evelyn, you talk about companies wanting to pass the hot potato of con you know, thankless content moderation tasks that make half the world mad at them at any given time. Um, you know, one answer, if perhaps you're a company with less money, 
uh, is Twitter's answer of let's diversify this, let's open source it, let's have lots of um, competitors come in to, to try their hand. And one answer, if perhaps you're a, a company with, with more money, uh, is, is Facebook's answer, which is let's fund a quasi court um, that doesn't really have the uh, you know, constitutional or human rights accountability of a court or the democratic accountability of a real institution of governance, but at least it's better than us, um, you know, and, and we will kick the hard content moderation decisions to them. Oh, and by the way, maybe then they will extend their mandate and also become the Supreme Court for YouTube or, you know, for, for other platforms. So one is a very, you know, centralizing approach and the other is a very decentralizing approach. Uh, it, it also puts me in mind of something uh, that Mark Zuckerberg was quoted saying a couple of times, kind of when asked about uh, competition remedies against platforms like Facebook. Uh, he, he was wont to point out that Facebook spends more money on content moderation every year than Twitter earns in its entire revenues in that same year, um, you know, which is sort of a you need us on that wall, you know, we're too big to fail, don't break us up, move, but does speak to this tension between, you know, do we want diversification or do we want choke points at any cost? Yeah, and I mean, uh... I can see very real risks, I mean, flaws, absolutely, and very real risks with both approaches. I'm sure that, you know, many watchers and yourselves will have, like, a strong preference for one over the other, perhaps. Um, but it maybe speaks to the benefits of having diversity, too. Like, I'm not sure we actually know uh, which model is necessarily going to have the, the, the worst impacts or best impacts. Um, and we can play it out, right? Like, we have these different platforms and we can see um, what happens. Hopefully, the fallout won't be um, too catastrophic. Um, but, you know, it, it does speak to the idea of we have um, laboratories of content, online content moderation, right? The Justice Brandeis laboratories of democracy, the states are going to be the laboratories of democracy. Well, online, we have the laboratories of, of, of uh, content moderation approaches, and maybe we can see what uh, pans out. But we've Which, mostly been... I you know, I was just saying, is one reason it's so exciting to have contributions from people like Tim Berners-Lee and Vince Cerf in, in the readings is you know, sort of people who created the era of rough consensus and running code, you know, who, who built an era where in lieu of rules, you had something called a request for comments, you know, where, <laughs> you know, rather than believing there's such a thing as a, a top-down answer that can necessarily be dictated, that sort of um, iteration and diversity, you know, is is a recipe for for building newer and better things. Um, we have so far mainly been talking about self-regulation. So Blue Sky, the Oversight Board, um, are definitely self-regulatory approaches and, you know, the, the decisions around um, Cloudflare and, and going into the stack in, in the app stores and things like that. All of that was voluntary uh, and, and decisions of uh, private uh, companies. Um, but as a number of the audience questions are raising, uh, there's always this in the background, a question, a question of actual hard regulation rather than self-regulation, um, which is inevitable. It, it is, some of it is already here and some of it is, you know, it's definitely coming. Uh, I barely know a regulator in the world that's not writing something uh, right now. It's impossible to keep up to, but if there's anyone uh, that has kept up with it, it's, it's Daphne. Um, and so... <laughs> I mean, some of the questions are getting at the idea of, you know, how should we regulate these these really powerful companies? You know, should we think about them as utilities? Um, and so I'm wondering if you could sort of talk a little bit about what is coming, but also what you think is a, is a more productive approach in this space. Sure. I mean, so I can't keep up with it either. <laughs> but um, but it is it's fascinating to see both the like similarities of approaches cropping up in different countries and the, you know, speaking of laboratories of democracy, the, the, the diversity. Um, I had an op-ed in the, the Hill in January kind of saying, hey, Congress, if you're going to mess with 230, check out what Europe's been doing because they've actually been, you know, doing consultations and getting information on this for 15 years and, and done some homework um, that, that maybe hasn't been done as much in regulatory circles here. And the, the big takeaways I think of, think from there are, you know, don't try to solve competition and privacy and speech questions all at once with like a 10 line change to CDA 230. You know? <laughs> Take each of those things seriously. Look at a real federal privacy law rather than some weird content related tweak that's supposed to drive changes to federal privacy law. Look at real competition remedies, not something that's sort of a, a, a kludgy 
mix of, of those three approaches. So I, I think that's a really, and you know, to point to a concrete model, um, not that I'm saying I love all of these laws, but you know, the, the EU has the GDPR for privacy, the pending Digital Markets Act for competition and the Digital Services Act for content issues and kind of separates those out in ways that I think are productive. Um, another is just to be cognizant of the realities of content of content moderation of like the high rates of error, the high rates of false accusations, the you know patterns of disparate impact when sloppy um, so-called hate speech filter tools are used. You know, look to those things um, for real, um, which again I think Europe is doing a, a decent job with. Um, and and then finally, don't pass a law designed for Facebook and then apply it to the whole rest of the internet. You know, as this entire conversation has illustrated, there are a whole lot of other technical players or just smaller entities um, that can't possibly live up to the standards that we would expect of a Facebook, nor should we want them to in many cases. You know, do we want um, Cloudflare um, or, or GoDaddy to, to act like a Facebook? Um, so, so I think there are a lot of good lessons there. I also think that uh, Latin American precedent, both in courts and in legislation, tells us some really interesting things about the roles of courts. Uh, the sort of if if you want platforms taking down content that you know currently they're immunized for in the U.S. now, do you want them to become the ones deciding about what's lawful and unlawful, or do you want a mechanism for courts to be the ones to do that? So th I think they're just. There, there are a lot of interesting ideas out there. And then there are also a lot of very troubling ideas out there. You know, Canada, for example, has a proposal that would, uh, first of all, you know, doesn't differentiate between internet intermediaries at all. So applies the, the same rules pretty much to, to everyone. Um, and then has things like, take down requirements on 24 hours of notice. And then if it if you're particularly suspicious of this person whose content you took down, you're supposed to report them to the police. You know, what, what, what could go wrong there uh, with the patterns of, of content takedowns and the, the patterns of police responses um, to, to different people? Um, they also have a proposal for platforms to build uh, filters that will automatically detect certain kinds of prohibited speech, which, you know, if we've learned anything from the um, Facebook files reporting of, of recent weeks, it's that even the most expensive and much vaunted automated tools for detecting things like hate speech have huge problems and, you know, are, are not ripe for mandates. Um, so, yeah, there's, yeah. there's a lot out there. Um, some of it is smart and some of it is scary. <sighs> Who would have thought that uh, Canada, with the late entry of uh, draconian and very <laughs> stupid free speech laws, uh, you know, the unexpected out of out of uh, left wing. Um, yeah, so I think maybe the, I mean, we're just wrapping up now, and I think probably the big takeaway for me, I guess, from both the package and our conversation today is just like the sheer diversity of the problems and uh, and solutions here. It's not just, you know, we have different problems at every layer of the stack. We have different solutions, both self-regulatory and, and hard regulatory. Um, and maybe the when we talk about evolving norms of uh, online communities and governance, um, we tend to get stuck uh, talking about Facebook and talking about Twitter and um, that, that's, it's, it's actually much, if that was hard enough, it's actually even much harder than that. So uh, thank you both. This is uh, really, really good fun and um, look forward to continuing the conversation. Don't think we solved it. <laughs> <laughs> Not yet. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get